This is the New Canaan Society podcast for the Franklin, Tennessee chapter. We are a group of men who gather together to encourage each other in friendship and in faith, and to support each other to be better husbands, fathers, and better men in the marketplace and in our communities. Friendship at NCS happens through our regular meetings in local chapters all across the country. The Franklin, Tennessee chapter meets the first and third Thursday each month at Puckett's Grocery and Restaurant in downtown Franklin from 7 to 8 a.m. This week, we heard Wes interview Tony Stevens with a talk called In the Marketplace. Enjoy. Support for this podcast comes from Harrington Interactive Media, which helps businesses and nonprofits rise above the noise and sell. Digital marketing is confusing, so schedule a complimentary discovery session with them and get a handle on your marketing plan. Mention the New Canaan Society when you schedule your call at harringtoninteractive.com. Let's open this up in prayer. Father God, I just thank you, Lord, for all the many blessings you've bestowed upon each and every family represented here, each and every business and opportunities to serve that are in this room. I pray, Lord, that you go before us, Father God, that you lay the path, and Father, that we have the courage to follow. Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity to be with all these gentlemen. I thank you for uh, for their earnest and loving hearts that they portray here in this room. And Lord, I just pray that we carry it out of this room and into our communities and into our businesses, Father God, and that through that we can further your kingdom. Lord, bless our speakers this morning. We want to thank you for them and thank you for the opportunity for us to hear, listen, and learn. In Jesus' precious name, amen. All right. Hey, how about a round of applause for uh, for Rick getting up here and playing for us in the morning? Rick, you, you add an, an extra element to our enjoyment. We appreciate that. Uh, you play here on Tuesdays and Tuesdays and Wednesday nights. If you want to come by for a little happy hour and the music, he's here uh, loving on you. So, anyway, uh, Wes, it's all yours, buddy. Guys are so quiet. Uh, it's good to see you guys this morning, and welcome to our New Canaan Society breakfast. Uh, we are, as we like to say, a group of men who are uh, in transition from what we used to be to what we're becoming, uh, with Jesus at the center, believing that uh, Jesus actually does transform our lives, that he does change our character. Um, that he knows how long it's going to take each one of us to have that kind of change and transformation accomplished. Uh, but we're committed to that long-term uh, process of spiritual formation that has to happen um, so that we can grow up into our child-likeness and live in the kingdom of God. Not just the future kingdom, but the kingdom that is here and among us and in our hearts right now. Uh, I have a continuing and growing uh, concern that much of our life in America uh, has been focused on the idea that uh, Jesus came to save us for something in the future. And I just want to make sure that we don't miss the fact that he came to save us and transform us for something right now that's just as important as what's going to happen in the future, right? And, and I want us to lay claim to that because if we don't lay claim to that, we, come, we become these fractured people that don't really understand or care about the world we live in. Uh, 
And I want us to be able to look deep into the eyes of people who are very different from what we are and, and, and that they would see, looking back at us, the love of Jesus Christ um, by which he loved the world and, and reconciled the world to himself, right? So, um, I'm sorry. Uh, I always start with a little, a little mini sermon. <laughs> uh, and that's all I have. That's all I got. Um, uh, yeah. So maybe you can remember that one. Um, I want uh, I want Doug Golding to come here. Well, Doug, where are you, brother? Doug, come on. Uh, Doug flew down here from New Jersey. He lived in Huntsville for a while and moved back to Jersey. He's part of the New Canaan Society uh, at Bergen County, uh, New Jersey. Uh, just a vibrant brother. Literally flew down here to be with us this morning because he missed us. What's wrong with you? <laughs> come on. Hey, guys, it's good to see my NCS brothers in Franklin. Good morning. And I bring you greetings from New Jersey, the Garden State. I didn't only bring you greetings, but I brought you a friend of mine uh, who um, is my ministry partner, my friend and my brother in Christ. Edwin, could you stand up and wave to the guys? And Edwin is the founder and director of a ministry called M633, where we take... I serve alongside Edwin where we take guys uh, who are coming out of jail or coming off drugs and we uh, get them Christ in their lives and uh, find them jobs and make them, um, give them back their worth and their identity. Um, so it's really good to, to have Edwin here with us. And I called up Wes and I said, I missed you guys. I needed to come and see that you guys were doing okay. <laughs> you know, I... You guys are very near and dear to my heart. While I lived here in Huntsville, I would take the trek up because you guys meant so much to me. A lot of my healing took place here. A lot of my healing dealing with the pain of race and, and the things that I dealt with took place here. And for that, I give God the glory. And for that, I say thank you, guys. Um, the, the, the South wasn't as, as nice to me as I as I would have liked, but when I came here, I felt safe. So you guys are very near and dear to my heart. And because of you guys, I have hope that heaven is going to be a beautiful place. Um, so one of the things that I do, I, I pretty much help men win. Say win. win. Say win. win. Okay, I help men win, and you can't forget this. And basically, my, my ministry is to help men discover their worth, their identity, and their need. Their worth. What am I worth? I'm worth the life of Jesus Christ. That's what God paid for me. That's your worth. I help men discover their identity. Who am I? I'm a child of God. Not my job. Not my job. I'm not a husband. I'm a child of God. These are roles that I play. I go to work. I play the role of a husband and a father. That's not who I am. I'm a child of God. Because when some of the guys that I work with are going through a divorce, and their very identity, if it's their family, is being shaken, unless Jesus Christ is your identity, you're in a bad place. As Wes said this morning, as men, we try to keep Jesus Christ at the center because that's where he belongs. 
And then I help men realize their need. We need him, a relationship with him, and we need each other. We cannot live in isolation, guys. If we live in isolation, we're an easy target for the enemy. And that's why it's important for this to happen. Because in isolation, none of us can make it. Love you guys. Continue to keep us in your prayers. And God bless what you're doing. This place looks good. This place is packed. Andy, you know, I mean, is it the $5 breakfast? (laughs) You know, or you guys just love to get together and meet up with each other. I hope it's the latter. Love you guys. God bless you. We, we got any bishops in the house? We could ordain this guy now. I mean, come on. Right? Hey, uh, Doug, uh, we're starting to use a phrase here that we want to spread throughout uh, all of NCS. You can take it back to Bergen County. And we talk about identity and who we are, and that is that we are sons of our father in search of our brothers. So, yeah. yeah come on. Uh, I'm looking for a guy with a receding hairline. Where'd he go? No, not Tom. Oh, Tom's, yeah, yeah, Tom's got the, the pad. I was looking for Tony Stevens. Is he going to respond to that? Tony, did you leave? Oh, here you are. Okay, great. Uh, come on up here and, uh, and get this microphone right over here. If you'll, um, do you want to sit down or stand up? Okay, whatever's good for you. I want to sit down. So um, one of the things that we have an opportunity to do here at NCS is to talk about all kinds of topics and all kinds of uh, parts of life, things that are... Uh, important to all of us, uh, you know, I, I keep asking the question, what, what are we not hearing about? Uh, what do we not hear our politicians talk about? What are we not hearing our pastors preach about? And each person in any of those roles has a limited um, uh, life experience. They don't necessarily, as a pastor, know how to talk about business relationships because they haven't had them. And so it's not their fault, but I keep asking the questions, what, what is not being talked about? So we have opportunities at NCS to introduce to you members of our community that are leaders, that are followers of Jesus. Uh, Tony Stevens is, um, is such a man. He uh, was the dean of the uh, Lipscomb School of Business. There's a, a really long bio that if you want to read all about him, I'm going to leave on the table up here. But I want to dive into a conversation, and I want him to uh, tell us a little bit more. Give us just a snippet about your business experience so that we kind of round out the picture. You, you've all your life uh, uh, been focusing on how do I be a successful businessman, but under the, under the umbrella of, of Jesus being the head of the kingdom of God, where all this stuff really has its significance. Well, first of all, happy to be here. Thank you all for uh, asking me. I, I, I think I was invited uh, to address this group four years ago, about the time you started, and I'm delighted to see, number one, that I didn't kill the whole idea because there's more people here today than there were four years ago, uh, so thanks for that, and thanks for forgiving me for whatever frail to message I brought then, but I appreciate being here today. I see a lot of friends and familiar faces, and if I didn't get around to say hello, hello, and thank you for that. Uh, Wes, I was a deal guy and uh, put deals together. Uh, my mother, bless her heart, who died two years ago at age 89, thought I couldn't keep a job because I kept, I kept going from deal to deal to deal. But that fascinated me because I would uh, really focus in really hard on a, a particular business if I was 
you know, involved in the leadership or if I was financing the business, which I did most of my career, I focused in on trying to get that deal done, and I found that to be very interesting. And I also was stimulated by the idea of what makes a given business work in different industries. And so that that fascinated me. Uh, I graduated from Lipscomb in 1972. Uh, We were talking a minute ago. My California friend over here couldn't believe I'm actually a native of Nashville, but I, I am. I was born here in 1950, so you can do the math on that and figure how old I am. Uh, graduating from Lipscomb in 1972 with my buddy Wilson Burton over here, and we started a business called Plus Media and built it into, uh, I guess you'd say, a fairly successful business, wasn't it, Wilson? And uh, Wilson brought the money in, so I give him a lot of credit for that success. Uh, sold it 10 years later uh, to a public company. Thought I'd made a little bit of money. By today's standards, it wasn't much, but... Uh, uh, everybody that invested in the business uh, made made some money, and uh, then I turned around and and invested that money in uh, a uh, chicken franchise. Uh, some of you may be around Nashville long enough to remember Mrs. Winter's Biscuit and Chicken restaurants, and uh, they were pretty good actually. And I kind of missed the the product, but I I really don't miss the business too much. There were 17 franchisees, and unfortunately, the company itself didn't work very well. So uh, I lost some money with that. My wife, uh, who was a fairly new bride at the time, forgave me. Uh, One of your questions there was, what's your biggest disappointment? We can come back to that, and I'll talk in more detail if you want to about that. Uh, went to work for uh, Ambassador Joe Rogers, uh, ran a company called Rogers Capital Corporation, put a lot of deals together, learned a lot, uh, great Christian business leader, uh, great mentor of mine, and when he came back from France as the U.S. Ambassador to France, he brought worldwide contacts. We had lots of opportunities to put deals together. Uh, left there after a few years uh, with Joe's blessing and encouragement, and I bought a little small printing company here in Nashville, which was almost bankrupt, and uh, we turned that around, uh, built that into a pretty good-sized business, sold it, and then went into business with uh, Sam Bartholomew and Clayton McWhorter and founded another investment banking firm, which uh, I retired from in 2007, and then the second half, I I really appreciated Bob Buford's books, so I decided to have a second half, and I went to Lipscomb to teach and do a little bit of leading of the College of Business, and here I am today, 10 years later. Thank you. One of the, one of the things that uh, is always fascinating to me is um, the, the different generations that, that uh, are interwoven at any one time. Um, my father was born in 1918. You told me your father was born in 1926. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was probably five or six years old, uh, knowing that we had no money, knowing that uh, I was wearing the shoes that were handed down by my brothers because they had outgrown them. And, of course, you know what that smelled like on the farm. Um, <laughs> and I remember the first new pair of shoes that I got when I was uh, going into ninth grade because I needed a, a nicer pair of shoes to go to school. Um, um, and, and so uh, we grew up, a lot of us who are our age, uh, with parents that grew up during the Depression. I remember asking my father at the age of about six, standing by the barnyard gate, uh, Dad, are we poor? And he said to me, well, uh, he asked me some questions. He said, uh, are you hungry? And I go, no. Do you have clothes to wear? Yes. Do we love each other? Yes. Well, then I guess we're not poor. So we had this mindset coming out of, they, you know, there was, there was this work 
uh, ethic that was, that was instilled. Part of it was the fear of hunger and, and of lack of things. Uh, and then you have uh, the advent in the 50s, about the time we were born, where you have uh, things like Napoleon Hill and the, uh, the book Think and Grow Rich. How many of you guys read that book? Look, look at the, I mean, even the influence still. And you have uh, sort of the advent of American uh, financial optimism. I'd love for you to comment on, on the transition that we have experienced generationally and, and what you see as the benefit of this optimism and some of the downside of it. Yeah, well, my dad was a product of the Depression, uh, as you pointed out. He was born in 1926. My mother born in 1927. They both died two years ago at age 89. Uh, my dad, uh, who was an elder in the church and faithful churchgoer and a true Christian man, uh, said that his highest values in life were faith and family, but the reality is his highest value in life was hard work. Uh, and I suspect some of you all can relate to that, either for your fathers or people that you've known. That generation was, uh, as Tom Brokaw said, the greatest generation. And I, I only grow in my admiration for that generation, not only because of what they were able to uh, allow me to be able to do in the next generation, but because of the, the trauma that they uh, lived through, first with the Depression and then with the Second World War. And uh, I, can't, you know, I can't even imagine, Wes, what, what my dad must have gone through. I, I think maybe the only time I ever saw my dad really break down and cry was about the time I was 16, and I was full of myself, as most 16-year-olds are, and he and I got in an argument about something or other. And instead of being mad at me, he started crying. Mm. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, like, if you're going to fight, fight fair, you know. <laughs> and, and I said, what are you crying about? And he said, you, you, you just don't understand. And I said, well, what do I not understand? And he said, you know, he said, I remember about your age, we hadn't had a candy bar. I hadn't had a candy bar in I don't know how long, and somebody gave me a candy bar. And I unwrapped it and took the first bite out of it, and then it occurred to me that my mother and daddy hadn't had a candy bar either, and I wrapped it up, and we took it home, and we split the other part into halves, and they each had a third because I'd already had my third, and that was the first candy bar any of us had had in maybe a couple of years. I can't imagine being that poor. And fortunately, you know, I came along in 1950, as some of you did, and we, uh, you know, we rode the, the wave. And... You know, I look back now and I think, man, I was dumb about so many things. I certainly didn't know as much as I thought I did, but I did okay despite all that. And I think most of us as Americans did. You know, it was just sort of the times in, in which we lived. And uh, being a baby boomer, you know, we indulged ourselves in a lot of ways that our parents, uh, even when they did have the resources to do that later in life, chose not to do because they just couldn't bring themselves right. to, to do that. I'm, I'm very encouraged and I'm so thankful for the last 10 years of my life here at Lipscomb where I've been able to 
uh, meet the next generation because I think there's been a, a, another change. Just like uh, the Depression formed my parents, the post-war uh, Eisenhower uh, boom years formed me, uh, this current generation has been transformed by the experience that many of uh, their parents have had in working for large corporations where they've been laid off, they've gone through downsizing, uh, you know, all the stuff we've all read about, maybe many of you have experienced. And the current generation uh, has become uh, very entrepreneurial. Uh, you know, college after college after college, the, the, the programs that are selling the best are the entrepreneurship programs, and that's a great thing, I, I think. And they, this generation has also become very servant-oriented. They, they, even if they go to work for a big company like Nissan or Bridgestone, they, they want to know, what are you doing to make the world better? Or I don't want to work for you. And I, I love that about this, this current generation. So maybe, maybe you know, we've, we've gone through three different sort of mindsets here in my lifetime. Maybe we finally got it right. Maybe they'll... Maybe they'll figure this thing out. One of the things that um, my wife and I had to come to terms with, she, at the age of 14, uh, in order to put food on the table for her younger brother, because her mom was a drunk and not doing it, uh, in order to keep the power on at the house, she had to lie about her age down at the local theater, say she was 16, so her little brother could walk uh, you know, across the, the four lanes of highway to the McDonald's to get, a, mm. get something to eat mm. while she was, you know, and he would, he would, he would be under the booth at the, you know, at the ticket counter when she was selling the tickets. And so I worked the farm uh, two years after high school because dad had had heart attacks and was not able to continue farming and for two years ran the dairy operation, uh, $50 a month and being creative, I was able to get myself into debt during that time, buying a car, doing whatever. And... <laughs> went to work in construction two years after that um, and learned a lot of, uh, I used to call them hard lessons, value, difficult lessons, and they are now valuable lessons because that's, they, they take on a whole new value as you grow older. But I, it dawned on me about eight or ten years ago, and I was thinking about uh, where Linda and I had come from and the kind of lifestyle that we have been blessed to participate in now. And the question came to me, if we were poor again, would we be okay with that? And we know how to be poor. We know how to be content in being poor. But we had made, I, th I told her, I said, I think we've made individually, without ever speaking about it, a vow that we will never again be poor. And I want us to look at our life and say, how is, how is this in line with the teachings of Jesus? Is this driving us in a way that the teachings of Jesus is not asking us to be driven? And it started, it started modifying how we started looking at life, how we started looking at of the ministries around us and, and all of that. I, wanted, I want to talk, uh, want you to talk for a minute about what you learned in business about fairness. Um, there was an old uh, uh, music uh, equipment dealer down in Memphis, and this is a story I heard when I first came to Nashville. And he would supply a lot of the, the music studios with the, with the sound boards and the, and the equipment that they needed. There was a young buck who was putting a studio in Nashville, had gone down to Memphis to deal with this old guy, and, uh, and, and, and was just negotiating uh, the deal right and left. It wouldn't quit asking for the better price. Finally, the guy says, look, you're not happy. I'm not happy. It's a fair deal. 
And, and I've always remembered that in terms of the fairness issue in terms of business. Like, when do you know that you've taken enough money off the table? How do you, how do you develop uh, in business a generous spirit that says there's enough here for everybody if we treat each other right? I'd like your thoughts about that. Well, I, you know, <laughs> at the risk of polarizing the room, let me just... <laughs> That's why we brought I, you. I know that there are red state people and blue state people in the room, undoubtedly probably more red states than blue state people. But the thing that we, we got some guys from Jersey. Don't worry about it. The uh, <laughs> the thing that that really disturbs me about this current era we're in, uh, and you can say it's an era politically, but so much of what we see and hear permeates the way we think. And the way we think determines not just politics, but business and, you know, personal relationships and all that. And somehow or other, we've got to overcome this idea of lose-lose. And, uh, you know, I'll never apologize for anything. That's a sign of weakness. And, uh, you know, to be successful, you've got to be the toughest guy. And uh, I haven't named any names of who may be ex- showing an example of that, but... Uh, that seems to have become the the, uh, the mantra in politics in the last few years. And, you know, it's not the way that I learned to do business. Uh, I, I didn't see it as lose-lose, and everybody has to be unhappy to be successful. I saw it as win-win. And, uh, you know, the glass is half full, and if you can find a point where both parties feel like they got something good then you, you maybe have a deal. Yeah. I, I can see how you could reverse that maybe and, and, and think about that a little differently, but uh, it's just not my nature. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm just not tough enough or not, and maybe I'm too naive. I don't know. But, uh, you know, I put a lot of deals together. And uh, while some of them, you know, didn't ultimately close, uh, we worked and worked and worked on the ones that did until we found common ground where everybody felt like they did okay. And uh, I, I, I think we have to, as Christians, have a mindset of how may I serve you? And I think my faith tells me, I mean, the Bible, I think, clearly teaches me that you receive as you give. And, I, you know, to have anything less than a commitment to give first and then to trust the Lord to return as he chooses to, uh, I think is just not, not what I read in my, in my Bible. What, what, is the, what is the, this is a fear I think that a lot of guys have uh, when they're in business and you're, you're trying to figure out uh, does anything that I learn in Sunday school and in church or out of the scriptures actually apply on the street? Um, and, you know, when, during the Reformation, one of the things that happened, you had guys like uh, Martin Luther and Zwingli and Calvin discovering a lot about grace, but not a lot about how it worked on the European street because it was still kind of a fresh new idea to them. And so we still have this idea in the West, well, this is my spiritual life, this is my business life over here, this is my family life. We have this, everything kind of cordoned off. Um, and, and my question is, uh, does it actually work? You know, uh, the text in Matthew that says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
and these things will be added unto you. How does that actually work in business? I mean, you know, you, if you start letting people know that you're vulnerable, we think, at least in this environment, you used the term earlier when we were talking about, the, the, was it the business of aggression or, or, or the politics of aggression? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, was that, did I get that right? Yeah. yeah okay, so, so how does this actually work to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you in an environment where the other guy doesn't believe that or even care. Well, to put that in maybe um, a little less churchy term, uh, this book that Steve Wilford and I wrote a, about a year ago about tractor supply, I'm not trying to sell books. Upside down, the amazing uh, story of how one innovative company turned its culture upside down and became one of uh, NASDAQ's top stocks. So I stumbled into this story when I was teaching at Lipscomb. And first, uh, for the first six years I was at Lipscomb, I taught business strategy. And Tractor Supply is a fantastic example of brilliant business strategy. But then for the last four years, I taught uh, business ethics. And when I took the class uh, to teach, I looked at the way it had been previously taught. And it was uh, being taught by a lawyer. Uh, who taught it as a compliance class. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't see it that way at all. I saw it as a leadership class, especially in the context of a Christian university. Uh, and so Tractor Supply, again, came to mind as a great story. And the, the title of the book is taken from their organization chart, which I think cuts right back to your question. They're, they draw their organization chart upside down. Yeah. And so instead of the CEO being in the preeminent position, the CEO is in the most humble position at the bottom of the organization chart. And their theory on that, not in churchy terms, but uh, I think in very practical terms is, you know, the CEO says, what do I know? Uh, you know, I'm not in the stores every day. The, the person who's at the cash registers in the stores, they know the customer. The store manager is the one that grew up and went to high school with the people that come in the store and goes to church with the people that come in the store and is in the Rotary Club and, you know, some little community in Iowa with the people that come in the store. They're the ones that know this business. So they should be at the top of the organization chart. And so that has become their form of servant leadership. And as I studied, and, you know, I, I wish I had learned this stuff 40 years ago, I mean, I, I made so many mistakes by not putting all this together. What, but what was your best mistake as a little aside? I think my, my, my best, did you use that word, my best mistake, my worst mistake, was not knowing that servant leadership is really about how can I make you better? I thought it was about leadership and management and how can we make the organization better and how can you serve the organization and I'll serve it too and we'll all get rich in the process. These guys have taught me that servant leadership, Jim Wright in particular, one of the three CEOs we write about in that book, taught me that servant leadership is about, Wes, what can I do to help you be a better person? And that will make the company better. Now, here's why this story impressed me so much. So the, the, the Bible teaches me, uh, give and you shall be given, serve and you shall ser- be served, you know, all that sort of thing. And these guys do this upside-down organization chart, 
And we contrasted that in the book with Milton Friedman, you know, a world-famous economist, Nobel Prize winner, who said the only duty of management is to maximize shareholder value. Maximize shareholder value. I went to Vanderbilt, got an MBA, and I heard that a thousand times in 1979 and 1981. Maximize shareholder value. And what did we get out of that? We got a lot of crooks. Who, you know, said, darn right, I'll maximize shareholder value. Watch me do it. Right, right. And, you know, some of them are in jail. Some of them just ruined a lot of lives. These guys said, you know, we're going to figure out how to maximize shareholder value, but we're going to do it by serving. We're going to help every person in this organization be better, and we're going to put ourselves at the bottom of the organization chart. So what happened with Tractor Supply was... They're listed on the NASDAQ, and if you all are stock investors, I suspect a few of you are, the other companies on NASDAQ include a few uh, big names like Amazon and Starbucks and uh, Apple. Mm -hmm. Pretty good companies, right? These guys had the highest stock appreciation of any company listed on NASDAQ for a 13-year period of time. They beat every single one of them. So if Milton Friedman could come back today and study tractor supply, maybe he would say, well, maybe there's a different way to maximize shareholder value than I thought. Maybe you don't have to beat the dickens out of the organization. Maybe just simply serving people. You know, the Bible knew what what the Bible knew. (laughs) I I think one of the things you're talking about, one of the principles from both the teachings of Jesus and what tractor supply put into practice was that as business owners, um, I, I'm not the hero of the story. Uh, yeah, I've been sort of at the, I've been at the helm of this thing but for, we think for we 46 are. years, and it's taken me a long time to realize Wes is not the hero yeah, in the story yeah, I because I can't do what this company does without the, the workers in, in, inside my company. And if they weren't there uh, with, with skills and gifts that, that uh, actually make up for my weaknesses... The, the, one of the greatest uh, transforming things that ever happened in my business was around the year 2000. I could, couldn't understand why certain things would happen for a while, really be good, and then my client would want to leave. And it was because I would get distracted because one of my primary skills is building and pioneering, and I don't want to have to maintain it. In fact, I'm not good at it. If I have to maintain what I build, the thing's going to fall apart. So I learned that I hire people to my weaknesses and that means I've got to be really open about what my weaknesses are. I've got to show the company my weaknesses so they know how uh, to build with me uh, to, 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 to our shared strength. And I have, I have strengths where they're weak. Um, and that's a vulnerable place for leadership, but that's, I think, what you're talking about. It is. It, it, it absolutely is. And, and you know, you, you said, well, what was your worst mistake? Uh, I think another best one. Best mistake. Best mistake. <laughs> I think another one was I didn't understand the importance of culture. Uh, You know, for the businesses that I actually uh, managed and ran, led, uh, I was trying to make payroll on Friday. Right. Uh, You know, who had time to think about the culture? Right. And now I realize, uh, you know, particularly after teaching this stuff for the last 10 years and really thinking about it, studying it, looking at successes and failures, that a leader really just has one real responsibility, maybe two if you count strategy, but uh, the real responsibility a leader has is to get the culture right, because you can't be the sheriff, you can't be there every minute, 
And if people don't instinctively do the right thing, you got big problems. Now, I, I, let me just digress just a second, and I'll contrast the tractor supply story to the health south story. Because that's all right. That's okay. I, I love the, this contrast because, and I'm not being critical. Well, I am being critical too. So, I'll, <laughs> so health south. Most of you know that business was based in Birmingham, and it was led by a guy named Richard Scrucci, and uh, they got into big trouble, counting fraud, all kinds of things. And uh, we brought a guy to, to Lipscomb right after I arrived who had been the chief financial officer. And we interviewed him in front of the students. And he was very transparent. He'd served three years in prison, lost everything, lost his family. And he said, well, what happened? And he told the story of of what happened. And he said, you know, I should have known that I was working for the wrong guy because early on, when I first went to work for HealthSouth, Richard decided we needed to have one of these corporate baseball teams. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we played on Friday night in one of these uh, beer leagues, blue jeans leagues, and, you know, we were playing Deloitte and Ernst and & Young, but we had to have New York Yankees outfits. Wow. And we were terrible. And we lost every game, and he couldn't stand it because he was trying to build Health South up as a big corporate entity in Birmingham, and he was determined to figure out how we could beat all these other companies on Friday nights. And so what he did was he cheated. And he went down to Tuscaloosa and recruited a couple of University of Alabama football players who came in and posed as Hell South employees and said, you know, I'll pay you $500 for every home run you hit. And the next thing you know, they were hitting home runs right and left, and, they were, and Hell South was beating everybody. And, you know, he got what he wanted, okay? I mean, so, how good do you feel about cheating and winning? I mean, come on. So flash forward now a couple of years, and they run into an issue one quarter, and they're a little bit short on their numbers. And Weston Smith, the CFO, reports this to Richard Scrucci before they release the numbers to the public. And Scrucci says, well, that can't be right. You must have made a mistake. Go back. Spend the weekend. Figure out the mistake. We're not going to report earnings that fall short of expectations. The stock will go down. So Wesson Smith and his team spend the whole weekend. They can't find the mistake. There's no mistake. It's just the way it is. And Weston Smith comes in on Monday and says, well, you know, we're not reporting those numbers. We're going to lie about it. And, what, and this is key point. What happened was they got away with it. And they're like, wow, this was pretty easy. And so flash forward now a few more quarters, and instead of trying to cover up what West, uh, what Richard Scrucci thought might be a mistake, Richard Scrucci's coming in saying, okay, here's what I want this quarter. I want earnings of, you, you plug the numbers. And the next thing you know, they're all accused of accounting fraud, and some of them go to prison. And I mean, so that's how easy we get into all this stuff. Yeah, I met, I met this man once, and uh, I've learned since that I don't really care for the kind of empresario, um, you know, just the, the way he presented himself. I've learned uh, partly through him and partly through other people to, to be a little bit more wary of, of people that present themselves as perfect because um, we're just not. Well, contrast him with uh, Greg Sanford, who's currently at Tractor Supplier, Jim Wright, who was previously there, or even Joe Scarlett, who was before Jim. 
I mean, what a contrast. Yeah. We're at the end of our time, but a couple things. We have a couple young guys in the room who are, um, who are business guys, starting their own business, doing their own entrepreneurial things. And it's either a time of, um, you know, that's really an exciting time to be in business or it's a freak-out time. What do you got to say to the young guys? Uh, I don't think it's a freak-out time. I think it's a great time to be in business. I wish I was able to start over, although I don't really want to do that, <laughs> to be honest about it. I'm happy to be 67. Uh, but for those of you who are starting, uh, I mean, my goodness, look at the technology opportunities. Look yeah. at the communication opportunities. Look at, look at the knowledge that's out there today versus... You know, when when you and I were coming along, I mean, yeah. just think about what a student is able to study and learn today yeah. that maybe wasn't possible 30 or 40 years ago. So I would uh, I would encourage you, but I would say, you know, just like my parents' generation, my generation, current generation, it all depends on values. Get those right, and everything else will fall in place. I want to leave you with a couple of uh, thoughts from the scriptures, um, Proverbs 11. Uh, and there's many things about business and money in Proverbs. You should look at it again if you're, if you're struggling with the balance, you know, the, the priorities regarding money. Uh, this is one that just is incredible. Whoever trusts in his riches will fail. Because that's not the that's not the source of any life. It's it's the Lord blesses with riches, but if we trust in them, we're going to absolutely have our priorities wrong. Um, Jesus said that you can't love God and money, uh, and it's worth having a very uh, quiet time with yourself, introspective time to say, is it the money I love or is it God I love? And am I able to use money uh, in the kingdom in the way that He wants, or is this something that I fall in love with? And I, I advise you as a brother who's done that, uh, who's been in love with money, to um, run away from that trap just as fast as you can and, and begin uh, to ask the Holy Spirit, how do I love the Lord our God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength above all else? Um, and then uh, Hebrews has this, um, this admonition. It says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, because Jesus said, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. What's your closing word? Appreciate uh, you guys in your hearts, and uh, in this uh, polarized, uh, secular, pagan world we live in, uh, you know, since you're a book agent, I'll tell you, I'd, I'd love to write a book about revivals. What causes a revival? You know, how do cultures pivot? Uh, so I would, I would encourage you to be the pivot point in whatever world you live in because that's really all we can do. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I, 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 I'm not on CNN. I can't influence the whole country. I can just influence a few people in a room like this or maybe you one-on-one. And so I would, I would say keep the faith, uh, make sure that you got your values right, be humble, and uh, trust the Lord. Attorney, thank you for coming. Um, let's hear it for him, and thank you very much for being with us tonight. Peace of Christ to you, brothers. You've been listening to the New Canaan Society podcast for the Franklin, Tennessee chapter.
Once you've subscribed to this podcast, rate us on Apple Podcasts to spread the word. And remember to check out Harrington Interactive Media, the sponsor for this podcast. Schedule a complimentary discovery call with them and take your marketing to the next level. Mention the new Canaan Society when you go to harringtoninteractive.com.